Good evening, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started here. My name is Mark Anderson, and Tim Posey asked me to do this lesson on the attributes of God, and next week on the Trinity and Christology. But I want to tell you a story first. About 32 years ago, I attended Spring Meadows Presbyterian Church leadership training. Maybe that was your first, Tim. I don't know. But uh, I came home that night from the training, and I told my wife, I think we're in a cult. You see, I had never heard of God's sovereignty before, okay? Or election or Calvinism. In fact, I had been taught the opposite in my whole Christian life. And my point here is what I'm teaching may be new to some of you tonight. These may be totally foreign concepts. You may be, some of these are, some people call them the Himalayas of, of doctrine. They're pretty hard to wrap your, your hands around or your brain around. So class rules, if you have a question, please ask, okay? I'm not going to argue with anybody. If you want to argue, you can go argue with Tim or the elders, but what we're teaching basically is an elaboration of Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 2, on Of God. If you haven't read it, you should read it, okay? So that being said, let's go ahead and get started. I'll open this with prayer. Our God, we ask for help this evening that you would speak to us and give us illumination as we look at your self-revelation in Scripture regarding who you are and what you are, and that we would come away from this teaching in awe of your majesty and love for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And by the way, for anybody who's viewing this online, there is a PDF of the outline on our website under resources slash church officers. So, like I say, tonight we'll be re re reviewing the attributes of God, which is a summary of the 12 weeks of Sunday school I taught here at Spring Meadows in 2021. And actually, I taught it in 2011 and 2016 too. So I've taught the attributes three times here. I would be very embarrassed if you went back and listened to what I said in 2011 because there was a lot of bad theology around then and I was doing my best to collect it. And um, I'm hoping I don't have to say, say the same for what I'm teaching tonight. I'm, I'm pretty rock solid on it now, but there were not a lot of resources available back in 2011 and the resources that were available, for example, on the Trinity were, as I have come to find out, pretty sketchy. Anyway, so, these attributes are divine perfections, which are essential to the nature of God. And this is number one of 107 that you're going to be filling in tonight. So, number one, and I've got fill in the blank, so you get your pens and pencils ready. Or If anybody needs a pen, I've got a spare one up here. Ask me after the lesson why I do it this way. It's so that I can just load up a ton of theology and you don't have to take notes. All you got to do is fill in one blank, okay? So number one, in Trinitarian grammar, the terms substance, being, nature, essence are exact theological synonyms. We will be focusing on the personal perfections of God when there was no creation, no heaven, no sin, and no angels to sing his praise existed. 
before there was a such a thing as time. So our focus is on the internal, the internal works of the divine being. And this is very important too. Latin for that is opera ad intra, a Latin phrase which means the inner acts of God. Opera means work, okay? Ad intra, not ad extra. Okay, we'll, we'll talk a little bit, bit about the distinction, but <clears throat> huh? intra, A-D-I-N-T-R-A. Okay. I've written some of the words down here. I should have written that one down too. So it's a Latin phrase, which means the inner works of God. Number two in your handout. We will focus our attention on the undivided essence and attributes of God, which is shared by the three persons of the Trinity using the classical Christian theism model. And I'm going to talk more about that next week, okay, what that is. We will affirm only what God has said about himself in the Bible, which includes deducing truths about God by good and necessary consequence, as Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, part 6 says, okay? And by the way, the Westminster Confession of Faith is based on the classical Christian model. And next week, I'm going to tell you about a lot of bad theologies out there, people who don't like the classical. won't be very hard to find something directly opposing what I'm saying, even from Reformed theologians, okay? So, number three on your handout, R.C. Sproul was once asked, what made Reformed theology unique? He answered, Reformed Protestant theology, all other theology is seen in relation to the doctrine of God that every other area on which the Bible teaches is seen in relation to the doctrine of God. All doctrines come after and in relation to the doctrine of God. We don't develop a doctrine such as how are people saved and then let our conclusions back into who we say God is. We start with who God is. Or, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism question four asks, what is God? Answer, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Number four, as we shall see in this study, it is difficult for the finite to grasp the infinite. However, what God does reveal about himself as scripture is both real and useful. It, it is necessary for salvation that God is knowable. Knowable. But because God is infinite and we are finite and limited, we can never fully understand God. This is known as God's incomprehensibility. We can have an apprehensive, meaningful knowledge of God, but we can never, not even in heaven, have an exhaustive knowledge of him. We cannot totally comprehend all that he is. Everybody good with that so far? Questions? Okay. <clears throat> Number five. God is imminent, in other words, intimately present, but he remains incomprehensible and transcendent. I've spelled some words up here for you if you don't know how to spell them. Transcendent is independent of the material universe beyond all known physical laws above us. So once we have decided who God is, we chase after that image, and the application becomes ob obvious. It's critically important that we gain an accurate understanding of who God is through the Bible. 
God's own self-disclosure. Otherwise, we'll inevitably move towards a fabricated and false image of him, you know, where we build a God that we like. Everything God says to us is true, but it's also true that everything God says is accommodated to our finitude. If God spoke to us without that accommodation, we would be consumed. Theologians have a word for that. It's not part of the lesson. You can write it down. That is that God speaks to us analogically, not univocally. Okay, so the whole Bible is analogical. Uh, number six. So when God describes himself to us, he often condescends to describe himself in human analogies, such as metaphors, like a fire, a fortress, a rock, a potter, a shepherd, etc. So a metaphor is an implied comparison. Number seven. So the Bible uses anthropomorphisms. That's Greek anthropo, which means man, and morph means form. So it's like in man form where human qualities are attributed to the Lord to describe his actions. Herman Bavinck, in his Doctrine of God, said, Scripture does not merely, merely contain anthropomorphisms. On the contrary, all Scripture is anthropomorphic. You know, where God is said to have a face, eyes, ears, nose, mouth, arms, arms. Number eight. Other passages in Scripture use what are called anthropopathisms. That's Greek for anthropo, which means man, and pathos, which means to feel or to suffer. Attributing human passions and emotions to God that have a figurative, not literal meaning. These are used when God is said to respond, that's your word, to events in a manner comparable to human passion. He's glad, he's sad, he's angry, he regrets, okay? Anthropopathisms. Um, anybody in here ever use the phrase, as it were? Tim does a lot. If you haven't, I'm going to tell you how to use it. We add the qualifier, as it were, to signal when we're speaking metaphorically. So, for example, I'm going to read Genesis 6, 6, 6 to you, but then I'm going to read it from Mark's, as it were, Bible. Okay. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Does God have a heart? No. Here's Mark's, as it were, Bible. The Lord was sorry, as it were, that he had made man on earth, and he was grieved, as it were, in his heart. Okay. So, when we read the Bible, we must, and this is number nine on your handout, when reading the Bible, we must let the explicit passages of Scripture clearly clarify the implicit ones. A doctrine that we infer from a text cannot be true if it contradicts the explicit teaching of another text. For example, in contrast to what I just read you from Genesis 6, Numbers 23, 19 tells us explicitly, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Okay? So, everybody good so far? Okay? I'll be asking at the end, we're on, getting close, this is our first attribute, next, at the end of the attribute. I'll see if you have any questions.
but feel free to pop your hand up if you do, okay? First attribute is aseity. Number 10 in your handout. So if there ever was a time when nothing at all existed, what could possibly exist now? Nothing. But if something exists now, what does it tell us? It screams for creation by a self-existent being. Self, okay? Number 11, everything that we know of, including the universe, had a beginning. Everything is derived from something outside of us except for God. He's not created. There was never a time when he was not. Eternally, he is. He has that power of being in and of himself. This is number 12. This is God's attribute of aseity. The term aseity comes from the Latin phrase, a say, meaning a means from, that's your fill in the blank, and say self or from one's self. Basically, it means that God derives from himself and he does not rely on some other being to create him. God has life from himself, in himself, and another word for this is independent. So aseity is not a common word in our vocabulary, so... Here's how many people remember it. Everybody remember the Warner Brothers cartoon, Rooster, Foghorn, Leghorn? He goes, I say, son, I say. That's a joke. I say, I say. Or another way to remember it is per se. You know, you know, the gun per se did not kill the person. Per se means in and of, its, in and of itself. I say means from himself. So it's an easy way to remember it. What was that? Oh, foghorn leghorn. So that's how, you know, if you get stuck. So aseity means from himself. This, this is number 13. <clears throat> aseity designates a divine attribute by which God, whatever he is, by his own self or of his own self. Since God is ase, he does not owe his existence to anything or anyone outside of himself. Nor does he need anything beyond himself to maintain his existence. He has within himself the power of being. He requires no assistance from outside sources to continue to exist. Number 14. As the infinite deity, any limitation must be ruled out of question. Should he be limited in some way? Limited by time or space? Limited in his power or knowledge? Limited by change? Or limited by divisible parts? limited by anything in creation, then he can no longer be infinite. His, existing, his existence and well-being is not dependent or contingent upon any being or circumstance. He's the final and primary cause of all things. Therefore, there is no cause that precedes him. He is in need of nothing. He is ase. Irvin Bavink, the Dutch Reformed theologian, says, Aseity is commonly viewed as the first of the attributes. And hopefully you will see as we go on tonight, everything connects to aseity, everything. Because it expresses the concept we need to designate God as God and to dis distinguish him from all that is not God. All other attributes were derived for this one. Because it is only when we have accepted that God is ase that we can understand the sense in which all of the other attributes a perfection are ascribed to God. 
hopefully this will become obvious as we proceed. And the, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Anselm, said, God is someone than whom none greater can be conceived. If he is, then he must be the most perfect being conceivable. And if God is the most perfect being, notice when I say God, and I say being, I'm using singular, one God. Hang on to that. And certain perfections must follow. Perfections like infinitude, simplicity, immutability, impassibility, and timeless eternity. Perfections that shield God from being crippled by limitations. Okay, so no limitations. These are perfections that ensure he remains the most perfect, supreme, and glorious being. Number 15 on your handout. God is not dependent upon anything outside of himself for emotional fulfillment or satisfaction, as if he possessed a temper and feeling subject to involuntary oscillation. Involuntary which would make him a contingent being and not assay, and therefore not God. So aseity tells us that God cannot be a victim, for example, of his creation's disobedience. Aseity tells us he does not experience ongoing and fluctuating emotional states. Nothing in creation can alter him in such a way to cause him to suffer or to change, any, to have any change or loss. The word contingent, just in case anybody wonders, I looked it up for you, means subject to chance or unpredictable. So God is not unpredictable. He's nothing subject to chance. Number 16. So how can we understand what it means when Moses writes down that God was grieved in Genesis 6-6? The Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth and he was grieved in his heart. Well, first we've called descriptions such as God-grieving anthropopathisms, which are metaphors. This is phenomenological language, which is the appearance of something, the way we see it, the way Moses saw it from his perspective analogically. Okay, Things as they appear to us, not necessarily in this case as God really is univocally, such passages must be understood and interpreted within the deeper and broader revelation of who God is, comparing explicit scripture with implicit scripture. <clears throat> so the divine nature may be defined as the essence, property, being, or attributes of godness manifest equally in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Aseity, or self-existence, and all other divine attributes belong to the one divine essence common to all persons of the Trinity, and therefore it is the triune God who is self-existent and not one person of the Trinity in distinction from the other persons. The Father is Asse, Jesus is Asse, and the Holy Spirit is Asse. If you've ever read the Athanasian Creed, that's kind of the way they, they go through it. They go through each one. But there are not three assays, but one assay. The insistence on the aseity of the Son is the foundation of the whole Christian faith in all the earliest creeds. Number 18. Now, I don't mean that they possess the quality of aseity independently of each other. That would imply tritheism. 
three gods, which is wrong. Each person of the Godhead is fully God, but God is one God, says the Shema. Who knows where the Shema is at? Let's look at your paper. You should know. Deuteronomy 6.4. Shema is the Hebrew word for here. Okay, so that's why they call it the Shema. It's a prayer Jews say twice a day. When we get up and when we go to bed, they say the Shema. So the Shema is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So each person in the Trinity has the entire fullness of God's being in himself because each person is fully God. They share in the quality of a seity in one divine essence. There's only one essence, not three essences. Everybody cool with that? Okay. So if God is independent and self-sufficient, then it's not impossible, then it's not possible for us to influence God what to do, to do what we want. It means that God knows all things from eternity and that he doesn't look into the future to see who will do what in order to make his decisions based on what he sees. God's independence that he does not consider what someone might do in a certain place and time and then make his choice based on that optical foreseen knowledge, that would violate God's aseity because it would mean his choices are contingent on the choices of others. That gives a pretty good, pretty good argument against Arminianism if you ever have to argue that with somebody. 19. If we can think of anything, anything, that's the fill in the blank, it's anything with an exclamation point, that would limit God, then it would not be true of God. A needy God is not a perfect God and therefore no God at all. We can be assured that if God is self-existent, that when we go to him in prayer, we are the source of all life. And since God is the source of all life, he's the only one that has the right or ability to offer eternal life, since it's a commodity which he controls. This should help us with the doctrines of election and predestination. It isn't mean, it isn't arbitrary. He controls everything. His will is what his will will be. He's the potter, we're the clay. Okay, then with the seity. Questions? You know, these first two um, attributes are really deduced using what the Westminster Confession of Faith calls good and necessary deduction, I think is what they say. But there's, you know, I think there's one verse in the Bible. Can somebody look up Acts 17, 23 to 25? I think that's, this is probably a verse that I think you will see resembles the saity. But like simplicity, I mean, you have to take everything from all parts of Scripture to come up with that doctrine, and, and for this one too. But Stephen, you got that? Uh, 23 to 25. This is Paul in the Areopagus.
That's good. That's good. That's good. You see, if you look at that, it's it's really talking about God's aseity there. Okay. So if there's no questions, we'll move on to the doctrine of divine simplicity. And by the way, this was um, the number one attribute on Thomas Aquinas's list. He thought simplicity was the highest of them all. So, number 20. Each attribute has all the attributes. The attributes sing in harmony. If you pull at the string at any one of these attributes that we're talking about tonight, or as essences, you unravel a ball of theological problems. This is the doctrine of simplicity. So the doctrine of divine simplicity, number 21, is the teaching that God, unlike his creation, is not composed of parts. Parts. God is a spirit. There is no corporeality or materiality in God, and so God's being is non-composite. God isn't made up of stuff more fundamental or ultimate than he is. And what I mean by parts is anything that is less than God and without which God, the whole, would be different from himself. And by the way, this is, this is all in like the Westminster Confession, chapter 2. It says God is without body or parts. So everything I'm teaching tonight is kind of an elaboration of what, what's in uh, Westminster Confession. Number 22. God is not compound, a composite or mixture. And by the way, this is a teaching technique I have where, and if you ever sat through one of my 45-minute uh, lectures on one of these, I say the same thing over and over and over and over from different perspectives, and I'm just trying to, to get different angles to get people to grasp it, okay? So God is not, number 22, God is not compound, a compound or a mixture. He is simple. God is an absolutely unified, individual, indiv indivisible spiritual being. In short, there's nothing in God that isn't identical to God. The simplicity of God means that he's not partly this and partly that, but whatever, what he, whatever he is, he is so entirely. So if you ask, what kind of stuff is God made of? God stuff. Okay. So God is not a mixture of justice, wisdom, and love. He is justice, wisdom, and love. Every attribute of God is identical with his essence. God is whatever he has. He is not the composite of his attributes. God is a simple being without parts or pieces. His attributes don't stick to him. He is what they are. So God's goodness, for example, is not a standard above him to which he conforms. Okay. His goodness is everything he is and does. It is God himself who serves as the standard of goodness for himself and for the world. He is, therefore, his own goodness. And this is number 23 in your handout. So, for example, if God is essentially good and goodness is not identical to him, then he depends on goodness to be who he is essentially. Thus, God would be dependent on something beside himself and outside of himself in order to be who he is in being. Were that the case, God would not be a say. He could not be independent. Parts indicate dependence. 
If God were composed of parts, he would depend on those parts for his very being. And thus the parts would be ontologically or fundamentally prior to him. Ontologically means like in, in being or existence. Okay? So those parts would be prior to God. That's why he's not made of parts. So for example, there could be no such thing as love prior to God. Love did not predate God's existence. There wasn't a bank or depository of attributes that God relies on to pick out attributes and then compose himself to be God. So simplicity protects the aseity or independence of God, which says that God's being, his essence, depends on nothing outside of itself. Simplicity denies that God has parts or is a com like a completed Lego set because this would imply God participates in things that are outside of the divine nature as part of his essential being. 24. A being that by nature is not composed or not composite cannot be decomposed. One that has no parts cannot be torn apart. So God has absolute simplicity with no possibility of being divided. He is literally indivisible, which is why there was no vacancy in the Trinity at the Son's incarnation or while he was on the cross. Does that make sense to everybody? I know the way a lot of people think about it is, you know, Jesus looks at the Father and the Holy Spirit and says, nice knowing you guys, and you know he bells out and jumps down into... No. He never quit existing as the second person of the Trinity. And this is where the doctrine of simplicity comes in handy. To know that the nature, the essence of God is simple. It's indivisible. Any questions on simplicity? Well, we'll go into that. We'll go. We'll go into that in detail next Wednesday. One of the things you have to remember is that Christ. I'm going to shock you. I mean. I have come up with a way to put this that shocks people. God took on a personless mind, body, and soul. Because he is the person, the second person of the Trinity. So he has a divine nature and he has a human nature. And everything we see Christ do in the Bible, he is acting as a man, as our mediator. So when he says, my God, my God, why have, have you forsaken me? It's because in his human nature, okay, he suffered. We're, we're going to go into that in a few minutes when we get to the doctrine of impassibility. Is that good? Does that answer your question? Okay. <clears throat> okay. So along with the, yes? We'll talk about that tomorrow. <laughs> He didn't lose what he was, but he became what he was not. That's what Augustine says. Oh, I'm sorry. Next week, next Wednesday. I'm telling you, when you read the history of how the early theologians struggled over this stuff, it is amazing to see just how, you know, starting with the earliest creeds, how they're building, 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 building. 
man, these guys, and I'm telling you, they're giants and we stand on their shoulders. But um, it is just totally fascinating to see how they've carefully they've looked at us. They've looked at all the her heretical um, Christologies, if you want to call them that. And, and really, that's what we're doing. This whole thing is about Jesus, okay? This is all about what we're doing tonight. Everything comes from who do you say Jesus is? And we'll see more of that next Wednesday. So when we talk about the doctrine of simplicity, included with that is the doctrine of unity. So this is number 25 on your handout. Christians are monotheists, the belief that there is only one God. In what respect is God one? Answer, in respect of his nature and being. And so there's one being, one essence, one divinity, one power, one will. And that's the one that drives people crazy. I think I've mentioned when I taught that here at Spring Meadows last time, I had three guys. When I said that, they argued, and I said, you're wrong. And by the way, it's not uncommon, okay? I went to, I'm kind of a theology geek, so I go to a lot of websites, and one of the websites I've historically gone to is called CARM, the Center for Apologetics and Research. Uh, Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. And I googled, what does he say about God? He says, Jesus has a will, the Father has a will, and the Holy Spirit has a will. And that is not monotheism, that is tritheism. So that's why I say, and it's amazing how often people think that. It is hard to imagine a God with three persons with one will. But I'm telling you, that's what we got. Okay, That's what all these creeds have been written about. And you should go back and read the creeds. It would be real helpful for you. So, one will, one intellect. The persons of the Trinity share one intellect, one energy, one authority, one dominion, one sovereignty. Okay? I hope your head's spinning because I can't grasp it. I can't grasp it. Okay? So, this is 26. Scripture reveals that there are in that one divine essence Three eternal distinctions that are described as persons known as Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And by the way, let me just tell you this. One of the things that's happened in developing doctrines of the Trinity is precision language. People have just been narrowing it down, narrowing it down. And even yet, it is difficult to, for us to grasp. But that when people start, it is so easy. It is so easy to get out of the, you know, the, the, the bowling lanes, or whatever they call them, I and people do it all the time. Um, so there are distinctions that are described as persons known as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three have identical attributes, and therefore they are one. Not merely one or substance, essence, but one in purpose and will. There are not three wills. What would we call that? Tritheism. Each person is completely God. Each is God, God's indivisible essence. 27. There are no parts nor members of the Trinity, only subsisting. Oh, I didn't write that. Oh, there it is. Subsisting persons. And we're going to talk a lot more about subsistence tomorrow or next week. Um, so in this word, subsisting, we have the prefix sub, 
with the root word sisto. So subsistence literally means to stand under. So we have three subsistences that stand under the essence, okay? Each person subsists or exists under the pure essence of deity. There's only one God, so there's only one nature. Each subsisting hypostasis or person, that's kind of the, the Greek word, hypostasis. Person's what we like to use, but using that word person gets people into a lot of trouble. Because that's where they think, well, a person has a will, so if there's three persons, there's three wills. Bad theology. Um, each person subsists under the pure essence of deity. There's only one God, so there's only one nature. Each assisting hypostasis or person shares in the common nature of God, namely his spiritual nature, mind, will, and intellect. Due to simplicity, Christian theology identifies each subsisting person as God, the one God. No one person can submit or command another since will belongs to the nature, not to the person. So next week, we're going to talk a little bit about common day um, heresies of recent vintage. One of them is the eternal subordination of the Son. Okay? So hopefully you can see how if there's one essence and there's one will, there can be uh, no submissiveness. Yes? Yes. And in every, every time in Scripture we see Jesus as our mediator says, only my Father knows, or I do what my Father tells me. That's Jesus' human nature, okay? Well, and like I say, we're going to get into this Christology tomorrow, but these are, these are why these things are thought-provoking, okay? Um, number 28, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each doc occupy the same divine space, as it were. Each shares the same eternal being. The Father dwells in the Son, and the Son dwells in the Father. Father and Son dwell in the Spirit, who in turn indwells the Father and the Son. The unity of, the, is, of God is the three persons in their mutual interpenetration. I've spelled it up here. Often referred to as perichoresis. That's a Greek word that theologians like to use. It's... Uh, Peri means around, even like a periscope, and choresis, that means to dance. So it means the Trinity are doing the dance around, okay, in their, in their unity. <clears throat> so the Trinity is not made of parts as if they were so many slices of pizza. The Father, Son, and Spirit are not divisions or composite parts in the Godhead. They don't combine to add up to God. So number 28 on your handout. The Oh, no, this is 28. This is the bottom part of question 28. As you see my notes, man, they're pretty. So the, the acts of the Trinitarian persons in their being or their eternal inner relations must be sharply differentiated from their doing, their common, common outward actions toward creation. So let's talk about those. 29, being. Being, God in his being, is the ontological, a lot of people will call it imminent. It's the ontological trinity refers to, refers to the one God as he is in himself. Above and beyond, all created time. 
The Trinity is the person's exist when their eternal relations to each other, their inner life, also known as opera ad intra. And as we progress in this, I'm just going to start saying, when I, when I say something, I'm going to say that's ad intra and that's ad extra. So hopefully you're, you're grasping it. Okay? Ad intra is the Trinity. And here's one of the big reasons we do that. People will say, well, Jesus was submissive to his father. Ad extra. When we're talking attributes, we're talking ad intra. Okay? That's why we're differentiating being from doing. And again, this is the focus of our study. 30, doing is the, the economic trinity refers to the roles that each person plays in the eternal, the external outworking of God's plan in regard to creation. That's also known as opera ad extra, a Latin phrase which means the external acts of God. These activities and effects by which the trinity is manifested outwardly in regard to creation redemption and consummation. The economic trinity is God revealed under conditions of time, sin, and incarnation when Jesus took flesh. And here's the mistake a lot of people do. Okay, They project from doing up to being. And that's exactly what Wayne Grudem has done and all those other people who believe in the eternal submission of the Son. They've projected God's doing to his being. You can't do that. This is grammar. A lot of what we're a lot of what we're doing here is we're learning Trinitarian grammar, okay? So, 32. When one person of the Trinity works, all do. They work inseparably according to their personal properties. In the executions of God's plan, the economy add extra. The Father sins, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit perfects. So people will say... Yes, I'm sorry, I did. Whew, how did I do that? There's some heaviness there. 31. So as God is one and three, so God acts, doing as one and three. This is known as the doctrine of inseparable operations. Okay? I had never heard of that until the last time I taught it. The attributes. Which teaches that because the three persons of the Trinity are one God, each person of the Trinity is operative in all of God's external works, opera ad extra, from creation through redemption to consummation. In other words, the external works of God are undivided. They're always doing it together, always. When one person, we already talked, well, we'll do it again, 32, when one person works, all do. They work inseparably according to their personal properties. In the execution of God's plan, the economy had extra, the Father sins, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit perfects. Okay, everybody good with that? Unity? Okay. Next, infinity, eternity, and omnipresence. 33. 32 is properties. Properties. We'll talk, we're going to talk a little bit more about that when we get to the Trinity, okay? <clears throat> 33, it would be a limitation placed on God if he was able to be constrained by time or space or human choices. That has nothing to do with eternity, but it does have a little bit to do with his infinity. God is not able to be constrained by anything. One way to articulate this truth is to affirm that God is infinite. 34, 
Infinity doesn't mean that God is really, really big, although that's often what comes to mind. Infinity is not the enlargement of a known quantity, like continually adding one to the highest number you can think of, but it's negation. Infinity means not finite. God, first, God is infinite in relation to himself. We call this God's absolute perfection. All that God has, he is, and all that God is, he he is ad infinitum, Latin. It means over and over again and again and over and over the same thing without stop. So I'm just trying to stretch your brain out a little bit using big words like that. So God is infinite and perfect in all his attributes. There's no end. It's not measurable. His power and perfection know no limit. 35, God's infinity in regard to space is known as his omnipresence. Omnipresence refers to God relative to space, and space like time is part of creation. Omni equals all, and presence equals presence. It means God is present or coexists everywhere in creation. But God cannot be contained by space. You cannot measure the distance between God and some point in the world. We've already determined that God has no body and parts, so that tells us he's not a spatial being. Prior to creation, there was no awareness. That there was no space as we know it. There was only God, and he was not anywhere. He simply was, or is. Since he was all that there was, there was no where. Relative to his existence. God does not need space. God is not affected by space. But creation cannot lock its creator out of creation. God does not have size or spatial dimensions, and yet is present at every point of space with his whole entire being omnipresent. 36. By the way, the wicked in hell are not separated from God's presence, only from his benevolence. Revelation 14, 9-11 says they will drink the, the wine of the wrath of God Man, there's some anthropomorphism there. The wine of the wrath of God in the presence of the Lamb. So benevolence is up there. If you don't know how to spell that, did they put it up? Yeah, okay. So the worst thing about hell is the presence of God. 37, God has no parts. That's simplicity. So he's not spatially divisible. Regarding his infinity in regards to time, God's essence is always everywhere, wholly and completely present. Note the word always, that's a time component. So another term you might see used in the place of omnipresence is ubiquity. Ubiquity means the fullness of his being at equal at all times and in all places. It's the idea of his simultaneous presence everywhere. Ubiquity relates to God being present everywhere in his entirety at the same time, and at all times. 38. Because God is self-existent, I say, he exists eternally in his ontological ad intra transcendence of time. Okay, that's up there. God also exists omnitemporally. Omni means all. Temporally means in time. That is to say, at every point in time, ad, ad extra. And this is why we use those Latin terms. 
If someone makes a statement, you can say, I'm not understanding. Or do you mean add intra or do you mean add extra? So we're talking about both here. We're flipping back and forth, okay? But time is obviously something that's created. Space is something that's created. So um, that's all X, add extra. So from a temporal, temporal perspective, sorry, I didn't finish 38. God is simultaneously at all places, at all times. So the God who is eternal in essence is also active in time, but not limited by time. God lacks any temporal location or witness. He does not endure through time. He does not have past moments that no longer exist, nor does he wait in anticipation for future moments to come into existence like temporal creatures do. Everybody good on this attribute? There's a lot of Reformed theologians who don't like that. They don't like that at all. There are novel theologies, you know, the people that say there can't be a God that perfect. We'll talk about them tomorrow or next next Wednesday. So God, um, next attribute is immutability. This is 29 on your handout. God is immutable. The word immutable comes from the Latin word immutabilis. M equals not, and mutabilis means mutable or changing. So the immutability of God means he never changes in his being, his attributes, his plans, or his promises. He cannot diminish, deteriorate, he regress, because then he would no longer be God. Whatever God is, he has always been and always will be. He does not change his mind or overrule one decree with another. He does not make a promise and then change his mind. Number 40. To say that God is immutable is to say that he never differs from himself, that he is incapable of change in his nature, character, will, or happiness. The concept of a growing or developing God is not found in the Bible. So God cannot change for the better. Since he's perfectly holy, for example, He's never been less holy than he is now, and it can never be holier than he is and always has been. Neither can God change for the worse. Any deterioration with the unspeakably, and another word for unspeakably is ineffably. You might have seen that in some, some, some songs and prayers you might have heard. Um, any deterioration with the unspeakably, ineffably holy nature of God is impossible. Number 41, the attribute of God's immutability is a doctrine that can be deduced by using what the Westminster Confession calls good necessary consequence. But the motivation for this attribute is not primarily, primarily logical because there is such strong scriptural support for God's immutability. It's clearly taught in James 1, Matthew 24, Malachi 3, Hebrews 10. 2 Timothy 2, Psalm 118, and elsewhere. Number 42 in your handout. The seity says God's existence and well-being is not dependent or contingent upon any being or circumstance. He is the final and primary cause of all things. If God could be changed, it would have to be from something more powerful and outside of God in order to be who he is in being. Is that the case? God would not be God. 43. Is, if God is, whatever he has, as the doctrine of simplicity states, 
that he is simple, without parts, and indivisible, then it does not make sense to say that God can undergo a change of any kind. For example, if we suggest that God gains knowledge from our future, the knowledge becomes a part of God that is capable of growing and learning. This would wrongly make him depend on his fullness of being on that which is not God. Since God is not composed of parts, he is not composed of inactive potential. God is pure action. No potential. Potential is what enables change, and since there is none in God, he doesn't change in his knowing, willing, loving. He doesn't move from one state of being to the next. God is absolutely immutable in his essence, attributes, plans, and purposes. He can neither increase nor decrease. He's subject to no process of development or of self-evolution. His knowledge and power can never be greater or less. He can never be wiser or holier or more righteous or more merciful than he ever has been or ever will be. Because he is immutable in his plans and purposes, there can be no failure in their accomplishment. By the way, God's immutable love is not contingent or dependent on his creation or what created, being do, created beings do because his love as, is as eternal as he is himself. This is shown in Ephesians 1, 4-10. It's what Reformed theologians commonly call the pactum salutis or the covenant of grace. Hmm? That's not a number. Sometimes I have to have lib, Bob. It's the covenant of grace. Where God, before the foundation of the world, just look it up. It'll ring a bell just like that. You've heard it a million times. The bad thing is when people, when Reformed theologians imagine the Pactum Salutis, they imagine three dudes at a conference table. The father says, hey, boys, i got an idea here. What? You know, how about we send you, son? Why don't you go down and acute, you know, assume the human nature? What? That's, that's blasphemous, I know, but that's what people think. I've heard when this whole eternal sub subordination of the sun argument came up, I read so many people say, but what about the pactum salutis? Doesn't the father send to the son? Son, get down there. So, I get a little emotional on this stuff, but anyway, his love is immutable. It doesn't change. Pactum salutis. 44. So as we saw in our discussion of God's divine simplicity, he is always, oh man, are we going to make it? True, dude. We've got a long ways to go. There's always tension between the Bible's description of being and doing. That is how his actions are reported. 45, those passages which speech speak of God changing his mind or repenting of creating man or making Saul king or destroying a nation and repents or destroying Nineveh must be interpreted in harmony with the rest of the scripture. We've already talked about this. This is done by recognizing their literary character, usage of metaphors, anthropomorphisms of anthropopathisms. We must let the explicit passages of Scripture clarify the implicit ones. Um, some people would disagree with immutability. 
there's a group called Theistic Mutualists. We'll talk a little bit about them more on Wednesday. But they would say, what about the incarnation of Jesus? The incarnation is not God becoming man as a caterpillar becomes a butterfly or as milk becomes cheese or wood becomes ash or a boy becomes a man. Flesh did not become God, nor did God become flesh by a real actual change of his nature. The two natures were united in the hypostatic union. This is about the only thing I really like about G.I. Williamson. This is diagram. This is Jesus' divine nature. He took on a human nature, okay, hypostatic person, the union of two natures in Jesus, okay, and he will forever and ever and ever be the God-man. Okay? So there was no change. Do you see that? There was no change to the divine nature. He just added. Some people really like to complain about that, though. So the son became what he wasn't while never ceasing to be what he was. The incarnation was a miracle of addition, not subtraction. The son took on humanity. He did not divest himself of deity. There was no change in God. There was no vacancy in the Trinity when Jesus became a man. Number 46. If God is not immutable, then Jesus could not be fully God. In becoming man, the son had to remain perfectly in the fullness of his perfection as God. Because his divine person is perfect and infinite, the merit of his suffering according to his human nature can be infinitely applied to all those he's chosen to save. And this, the incarnation, is the central fact of Christianity in uh, all of history. So, 47. Yes. Say, say again. Harmony and explicit. Harmony. Okay. Everybody good? 47. Clearly, if God receives anything from his creation that is not already completely in himself, he is not a say from himself or self-sufficient. Similarly, if God learns something from creation, if, for example, he perceives faith and then elects based upon that, he's not clearly omniscient and immutable. The love of God cannot be certain if it's grounded in the type of love where we first love him. God's decisions are not dependent on the actions of man. Next, impassibility. Anybody need a one-minute stretch break? Everybody good? Good. Impassibility. This is the one a lot of people really hate. 48. So how should we understand God's inner life? Does God have emotions? If so, how are his emotions like ours or unlike ours? And does God suffer in himself, in his own being, his essence? Or is God incapable of suffering? This is our topic here today. Impassibility with an I, P-A-S-S-I, not impassibility with an A, which refers to the problem your car might have overtaking my wife's car on the freeway. 49. The immutability of God 
implies the impassibility of God. Im means not, and pasio, or passibilis, means able to suffer. God is not able to suffer. Impassibility that God is without passions, just as he is without a body. This means that God is not subject to suffering, to the onset of passions or moods or changes of mind, emotional fluctuation, or cravings for fulfillment. That great Westminster Confession, chapter 2, says, There is but one only living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. Like I say, you should read that, chapter 2. It's pretty good. Um... 50, when we studied the doc, well, you know, one of the first arguments for impassibility is that God has no body. Okay? He's a spirit. He doesn't have veins. He doesn't have heart. He doesn't you know, have digestion. He doesn't get angry you know, when he's not fed. Or... So that's really the first argument in impassibility is that God has no body. He's spirit. 50, when we studied the doctrine of divine simplicity, we learn that God is, in his essence, cannot be built up out of parts more basic than himself. If God were able to suffer, it would, would mean that he depends on that which is not God in order to be God, to be complete. Okay. 51. Impassibility is the property of God's nature which is utterly steadfast, not subject to moods or temperamental changes of any kind, much less in being over overcome in any way. God cannot experience changes of state due to his relationship or interaction with human beings. The created order cannot alter him in such a way as to cause him to suffer any modification or loss. If God is immutable, then he is impassable, since passability, or being able to suffer, implies change. To say that God is impassable is to shield him from uh, loss. You know, Scripture occasionally ascribes motions to God. Sometimes he's said to be grieved or to be angry, to be pleased or moved by pity. And we've all talked about how we treat those as anthropopathisms, but many Christians are reluctant to conclude that these anthropopathisms are meant to be taken figuratively in any degree. After all, they say, one of the greatest comforts to any believer is the reassurance that God loves us because of how lovable we are. You know? That if love is stripped of its passion, they think it's a lesser kind of love. They say, doesn't the doctrine of divine impassibility diminish God's love? No, it doesn't. Okay, 53. It's a serious mistake to impute any kind of thoughts to God that are cast in the same mold as human passions as if God possessed a temper subject to involuntary oscillation. Oh, there's 53. God's impassibility is a quality of his aseity or divine fullness. So unlike us, God is not dependent on anything outside of himself for emotional fulfillment or satisfaction. Divine impassibility says that nothing in creation can affect or change God. For example, God cannot receive something bad and lose something good. Like, he cannot receive hate and lose his joy. Um, 54. God certainly cares. He actually understands. He really loves. 
so much that Christ died for his people. The perfection indicated by each of these terms is real in God, but they did not come into God's possession by way of passion. That is, by way of unfolding emotive experiences. Unfolding emotive experiences to which he submits himself. So God has emotions, but does he get goosebumps? No. That's the point. Nothing can make God love less or more. He only loves in one changeless way, perfectly. That's it. God loves perfectly. 55. So let me ask you a question. Why did the Son become a man? So that he could suffer. Out of God's great and impassable love for us, he remained what he was, impassable, his human nature, and became what he was not, passable, his human nature. Well, the, the previous was divine. Christ's principal mission into the world involved suffering. Only the incarnation allows God to undergo the suffering that was needed for our redemption. If God already prior to and independent of the incarnation suffers, like some people, some people want a passable God. Well, if that's the case, then we are confronted with the problem of showing why the incarnation is still needed. Jesus became a man so that he could suffer, okay? so that he, he could be our mediator as a man. Everybody good with that? Fifty-two. Did I miss fifty-two? I don't have it marked on my list. No wonder. Fifty-two. Reformed theology says if God's creature can literally make him change his change his mood. Wow, I I put that one as an option. I didn't even read it. If outside influences can enforce an involuntary change. Do you get the idea of impassibility? I mean, have I painted a good enough picture for you here? You'd be amazed how many theologians hate it. Yes. That's a very good one because I don't have time for it tonight. I'm going to tell you, we're going to talk about Jesus' divine nature and his human nature, but it's the person. When we look at the cross, we say, who's there? We say, it's the Son. We say, how is he suffering? Only The only way he can, humanly. But he is still the person. He is still the second person of the Trinity. So when we, so we're going to talk a lot about that. Next Wednesday, okay. Okay. Once you pull in the thread of impassibility, a lot of other threads come along. One has to give up God's immutability and eternity. 
If God responds in fits of emotion or in depression, he's not immutable. You're not immutable, not eternal. Next, omniscience. 56, I don't think we're going to finish on time. I'm going to do my harvest here, though. How smart is God? How big, if I may anthropomorphize, is his brain, as it were? How many thoughts can God hold at one time? How large is God's big picture? I love the way the psalmist puts it in Psalm 147.5. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The phrase beyond measure in Hebrew literally means there's no numbering. Beyond count. 57. Omniscience is the divine attribute of being infinitely and perfectly all-knowing. God knows all things, including our thoughts and motives. The word comes from the Latin omni, meaning all, and scientia, meaning knowledge, indicating the all-compassing nature of God's knowledge. It means that God knows all things actual and potential, past, present, and future. It is affirmed throughout Scripture with the simplest expression being 1 John 3.20, which says, God knows everything. 58. I better read this. I wasn't going to read this, but... Because God knows all things perfectly, He knows no one thing better than any other, but all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He's never surprised, never amazed. He never wonders about anything, nor does He seek information or ask questions. God is self-existent, self-contained aseity and knows what no creature can ever know. He knows himself perfectly. 58. Since God is eternal, he experiences no succession of moments, which also means he experiences no succession of knowledge. God's knowledge is absolute in the sense that he is forever perfectly aware of all things. God's knowledge is simultaneous, not successive. God holds his knowledge in one act of timeless, eternal intuition. 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 54. God's omniscience is so closely related to his omnipotence, which means all-powerful, that you can hardly separate the two attributes. His knowledge is his power, and his power is his knowledge. He knows all things because he created them. His knowledge is causative, not contemplative like ours, when God thinks worlds come into existence. 60. God's knowledge is also linked with his sovereignty, which is a subset of omnipotence. He knows each thing both in itself and in relation to all other things, not only because he created it, but also because he sustains it and now makes it function every moment according to his plan for it. Plan, according to his plan for it. Now, Arminians say, God knowing what I choose is simply knowledge based on foreseen optical evidence. And that this knowledge in no way determines... Um, actually, this is my waffle story. What am I going to eat for breakfast tomorrow? God doesn't pull out his tape of Mark's breakfast, you know, May 3rd, 2023. What is Mark going to have? I need to see. Let me pull out my little tape here. Oh, he's going to eat waffles. So Arminians would say that God seeing that, in no way does God determine my choice of waffles. God simply looked into the future and saw what my choice would be. No. God knows directly, that is, without sensory data, all that has happened 
is happening and will happen. 61. It isn't necessary to abandon God's sovereign knowledge of the future in order to maintain human responsibility. Theologians use the term concurrence to explain the reality that God and human beings, this is an important one, I want you to remember the doctrine of concurrence, okay? God and human beings act, both act at the same time so that the Lord's plan is fulfilled and our choices are really and truly our own. That's concurrence. That's God's divine activity accompanies the action of man at every point but without robbing man in any way of his freedom or responsibility. And of course, the locus classicus for that is Genesis 50, 20. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Yes. I'm going to talk about compatibilism here. They're, they're very, they're kind of the same. They're just different words. Two seconds and we'll get to compatibilism. Good call, dude. Um, so we just looked at God's omniscience and we talked about how God's foreknowledge implies uh, the predetermination of, of, about, of all things, which is about God's power. 63. This is the attribute. Oh, we're in the next attribute already. Omnipotence. This is the attribute of God's omnipotence and his being almighty and all-powerful. Omnipotence in Latin, omni means all, potence means power. The word means all-powerful and refers to the fact that God's powerful is infinite and unlimited. God has the power to do all he wills to do. That's his ordained power. And he has the power to do that which he will not necessarily do. Absolute power. A good example is that is when they, he talks about turning stones into the children of Abraham uh, in Matthew 3.9. He has both the resources and the ability to work his will in every circumstance in the universe. To say that God omnipotent doesn't, however, mean that he has the power to contradict his own nature. Contradict. For example, make a rock so big he can't lift it. Yes. 62. What did I do with 62? Predetermination. Yes. Okay, so how do we describe the power of God? I was going to tell, we're running out of time, so I can't go into my stories, but I was a gas man, and I used to explain to people that the power of one cubic foot of natural gas is the power of a thousand kitchen matches. So how do we describe the power of God? Do we say... His power is the power of a million supernovas or a billion, billion supernovas. God's not at the top of the scale. He's never been on the scale because he utterly transcends scales. Psalm 62.11 tells us power belongs to God. That means not that God has more power than anything or anyone else, but anyone or anything that has even an atom of power has it because God has delegated it to them. God has all the power. 65. Omnipotence is identical in meaning with the more familiar word almighty. This word occurs often in our English Bible and is never used of anyone but God. God alone is almighty. Revelation 11.17 says, for example, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you've taken your great power and begun, begun to reign. 
66. A sovereign ruler over the universe, God controls everything. Sovereign means possessing supreme, unlimited, unrestricted, independent of, and unlimited by any other thing. Sovereignty and omnipotence go together. One cannot exist without the other. To reign, God must have power, and to reign sovereignly, he must have all power. Um, and when one thinks of topics, again, that create frictions among Christians, the subject of divine sovereignty is probably high on the list. We touched on that and when we talked about omniscience. It's sometimes supposed by Arminians that God knows the future but does not control it, that he upholds the world but does not intervene in it, or that he gives general direction but is not concerned with detail. The Bible rules out all limitations of God's power and sovereignty. Number 67, God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in a, such a way that human responsibility is curtailed, minimized, or mitigated. This is, Richard, the doctrine of compatibilism. God is sovereign and human beings are morally responsible. The doctrines are compatible. Okay. So as... Reformed Christians, we say we would say men have free will, but it's compatible free will. Okay. Arminians believe in what's called libertarian free will, which means I can do whatever I want. God has nothing to say about it. I can be saved. I can be a lizard. You know, whatever. Anyway. <clears throat> Sixty-eight. To be Lord over all creation, He must possess all knowledge. And if God were lacking one infinitesimal modicum of power, that lack would end his range and reign and undo his kingdom. That one stray atom of power would belong to someone else and God would be a limited ruler and hence not sovereign. So what happens if we don't give attention to the sovereignty of God? Human sovereignty rushes in to take the place. 69. Man, we're not going to make it. I'm so sorry. What do we do, Tim? What do you do? Yeah. I don't know. We'll see how far I get. Providence, number 69, says, Providence says the Heidelberg Catechism is the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that the herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and, riches and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Providence is the care exercise, number 70, by God over his creation, that God provides for his creatures, Pro equals before, and video means to see. So God created all things. He sees before, okay, before he made it. God created all things ex nihilo and sustains then a being in each moment. God sustains all things, directs all things, plans all things, ordains all things, superintends all things, works all things after the counsel of his will. The doctrine of divine providence is the soundtrack of Scripture. It's everywhere present, even if you're not consciously 
aware of it. And God is the first cause behind all second causes. So what's the first cause? It's like when you set up some dominoes, the person who sets it up and pushes the first domino, that's the first cause. Um, creatures do what they do because God decreed what he decreed the first cause. That's the clear teaching of Exodus 9, Romans 9, Job 38. Also, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapters 5.2 and 5.3. Number 71. Our salvation is an example of God using second causes or means. Another word for second causes is means. To accomplish an end dictated by a first or primary cause. God willed from all eternity in the Pactum Salutis that each of his elect will come to faith. Where it happens, when it happens. This is the first cause. And he uses secondary clauses like the foolishness of preaching to accomplish his plan, to accomplish that which is dictated by the first cause. Our faith is the gift of God, yet the act of believing is properly ours. We could really go on and get into sin and evil, but we don't have time for that. So that was a bonus part of my talk. Next, goodness, mercy, and love. And we're moving now on to God's communicable attributes. Uh, God's communicable attributes are those which, in some degree, may be reflected in man. A Christian has any of these attributes in an absolute sense. Nevertheless, they possess some degree of that characteristic which will be enhanced at the return of Jesus. So, while it's true that, in one sense, God loves the whole world and that he sustains the world and offers salvation to any who believe, Nevertheless, he does not love all men in the same way. So we're going to talk about three ways God's love manifests itself. This is number 72. We're going to talk about goodness, mercy, and love. Goodness, definition, divine goodness is the overflowing bounty of God by which he who receives nothing and lacks nothing communicates blessing to his creation and to his creatures. God's goodness is the opposite of harshness and cruelty. To experience divine goodness is to enjoy the sweetness, friendliness, benevolence, and generosity of God. What's benevolence mean? I was just trying to get one of these dudes to say to him. <laughs> you know, some of these guys may want to take a benevolence offering someday. Mercy. God's mercy is God's goodness to those who deserve only punishment. It is essentially synonymous with God's special providence or grace. Love. God's love is his eternal giving of himself to his covenant people. So let's dive into goodness. 73. This is the quality of generosity. Generosity means a disposition to give to others in a way which has no mercenary motive. No quid pro quo for you Latin lovers. And it's not limited by what the recipients deserve, but constantly goes beyond it. Generosity expresses the simple wish that others should have what, make, to have what makes them happy. 74. God's goodness is known as God's common grace or general providence in that it is displayed to all in creation, preservation, and blessings of this life and is given regardless of the recipient's awareness and acceptance of it common grace. 
75. Next, God is mercy and merciful. So let's define mercy in the context which I'm teaching it. Mercy is the concept of God's special providence in regard to salvation. Okay, Special providence. We have general providence. Now we have special. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. If you deserve to be punished something and that punishment is averted or turned away, then you have been shown mercy. What is the opposite of mercy? Justice. 76. So what is grace? Okay. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. The other side of the mercy coin, as it were. To understand the difference between grace and mercy of God, it helps to look at his dealings with the unfallen elect angels of 1 Timothy 5.21. They are the objects of God's free and sovereign grace because of election of them, but they had no need of mercy since they had not sinned. They require no justice and therefore no mercy. So they got what they didn't deserve, grace. 17, 77, mercy is that attribute of God in relation to human guilt where forgiveness is given to those that deserve punishment. God is not obligated to give mercy because by definition, mercy cannot be oblig obligatory. If you say God owes everyone mercy, you are not thinking about mercy anymore. Justice, however, can be obligatory and something we have all earned. 78, Romans 9.18 says, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he desires. God shows mercy sovereignly and unconditionally to some, the elect, and he gives justice to those passed over in election, the reprobate. I didn't spell that. If anyone wanted to spell that. I couldn't believe there was such a word when I first learned about this stuff. The elect, the reprobate. You've probably heard some, someone call someone a reprobate. But basically, the reprobate is um, those who are passed over in election. 79, reprobation, like election, is a decree of God ad intra, before time. So in the Reformed view, God from all eternity decrees some to election and positively intervenes in their lives at extra in created time to work regeneration in faith by a monergistic, that means one energy, work of mercy and grace. To the reprobate, God withholds this monergistic work of mercy and grace, passing them by and leaving them to themselves. He does not monergistically work sinner unbelief in their lives. You see the asymmetry here? Everybody good on that? It's kind of one of the things that, you know, one of the harsh things people say, think about Calvinists is that God symmetrically works election and reprobation. That he causes, causes it monergistically in both, okay? So, you know, why don't we stop here? Um, oh, let's see how many pages we got to go. One, two, three, four, five.
six. I've got seven pages to go. I don't know what happened. I, I have a little formula I use for teaching Sunday school. Huh? It's only three. Yeah, I'm talking about my pages. My Sunday school pages are done in a font, which is font size 12. And typically, it takes me three and three quarters minutes to cover a page. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Me? Dude, I, I can talk this stuff all night. My voice is a little... I mean, wait till you get to jealousy and wrath, man. Those are, those are really cool. So we're going to stop here. Yes. Yeah. Nope. No, this is this was trying to shoehorn in 12, 12 weeks of teaching into an hour and a half. Yeah. I thought I could pull it off. I truly apologize to you. I really do. I do just want to go over briefly what those remaining attributes were. You know, we didn't get to love, and love is, you know, a lot of people's favorite attribute. Um, we didn't get to holiness, righteousness, and justice. We didn't get to jealousy and wrath. Jealousy is a good one, you know. 